April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Henrik Mortensen is one of the most influential Atlantic salmon anglers in the world. Over the years, Henrik has guided on some of the best salmon rivers on the planet and has taught fishing and casting since the 80s. He now runs his own company, Samuel Logic, which focuses on taking the guesswork out of choosing a fishing outfit. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Henrik on the Gala River in Norway to pick his brain about Atlantic salmon and how to catch them. We touch on leader lengths, water column, fly color, the AFTM chart, and more. Geez, you've been on my list for a really long time to do this. I appreciate that. A lot of people have been asking to have you on the show. So thank you for taking time out of a fishing day. I know it's painful. (laughs) It's my pleasure, but it is painful. That's right. Let's just go ahead and get started. Okay. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Denmark in uh, in the 60s, 62. I'm not afraid of saying that. And uh, in the middle of Jotland. It was not particularly a place for for fishing there, but you know, we, we fished the local streams. And of course, I had a lot of fun with that. And it was like the story, like everyone else, you know, your dad takes you out and you fish and and that's how you get into it. But he was not the one introducing me to fly fishing. It was like done by, uh, it was something like I discovered myself by actually going to the streams myself because I was so like attached to water from a very young age. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spent a lot of time by the river, like, you know, skipping school and just going there instead. And... Um, one day I saw like a, an elder gentleman fishing. Now I don't know who the guy was or where he was from. He was talking some weird language. So I, still today I don't know where he's from, but I think he, I assume he was English. But he was fishing with a fly rod and he was doing this motion back and forth. And back in those days we were used to like digging worms, you know, and fishing with worms. But I thought that, that looks interesting what he was doing. So I was watching him for quite a while. And uh, he engaged me and... Uh, of course, we, I didn't understand what he was saying, but you know, by sign language, you know, showing me things, you know, I kind of got an idea what this was. And he gave me some flies, and from that day, you know, I, I just got attached to fly fishing because, I said, wow, this is easier than digging worms. You just co- you cast those out and you catch fish. But were you catching as many fish as you did with worms? Uh, no, not at all. But you know, it was still like it was different because you know I didn't have a fly rod either, so it was something I understand. Like the fly has to be dragged through the water somehow. So I, I took like some old pieces of wood and put that on my, my spinning rod, you know, and then had uh, the line below it and then the fly in it. And I found out like by casting it out and dragging it over, you know, I actually got fish. How old do you so think you were at that point? I had been around uh, 10 years old, 10, 11 years old. Okay. Yeah. Now, when, did you fish all through school? Oh, I did. I fished more than school, for sure. <laughs> you were skipping school? <laughs> I was skipping school. I was bad back then. You did know, you I finish? I did finish, yeah. I, did. I finished 10th grade, you know, and uh, I've done some more study in life, you know, done some learning for uh, it, particularly like educating other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, But uh, school was like secondhand for me, for sure. Now, what kind of fishing do they have in Denmark? We have great fishing in Denmark. We have like a sea trout season, which runs 12 months a year. So we have like uh, eight months in the river and four, four months in the coast where we can fish there. And then, of course, we have salmon fishing now, which has really come up the last couple of years. And it's really growing fast now. Why? Well, they've done a lot of restorations to the river, put them back in their old layers because they're all like straightened out due to agriculture. But uh, 10 years ago, the government decided to put them back into the old layers and they still had the genes from the old salmon. And 
they have done a lot of restoration. There's more estuaries coming into the river. So now you have salmon population growing like mad in Denmark. And okay. They did like, a, I think, eight years of catch and release. Now today they have a, a quota where you can take like a certain amount of fish, like 100 fish, and that, then the rest has to be catch and release. Okay, but when you were younger, that wasn't a it, good fishery? No, not at all. I had my first Danish salmon in 92, I think. Back then, there was not many salmon. There was hardly any. Yeah. Uh, what was your first experience with the Atlantic salmon? Because when I think of you, I think mm. of, I, I associate you with Atlantic salmon. Yeah. It's also my my thing, you know, salmon yeah. salmon fishing and sea trout fishing. I mean, this is what I'm born and raised for, you know, and this is what I do. So when did you yeah. figure that out? Uh, quite early in life. I mean, you know, there was a fascination about being at the stream and the way you fish for salmon and sea trout and, and, and all the techniques that goes with it because it's something you can really explore in many different ways. And uh, I fish sea trout like every day if I can get away with it. And since we had like a 12-month season, it was like my whole life, so to say. What so, is the fascination with sea trout? Is that done in the ocean? Uh, sea, sea trout is different than salmon. I like both of them equally. But sea trout is more tricky compared to salmon. Salmon is easier. And uh, because sea, sea trout is like, a, it's a more moody fish and it, it demands a lot more techniques. And there's a lot of changes uh, throughout the season, like the water temperatures, the time of the day, you know, what kind of uh, fish you're fishing for, if it's a fresh fish coming up or an older fish in the river. Okay, so you're fishing for them in the river. Yeah. All right. Now, are Both they like, rivers and sea. Are they like proper trout? So they're eating, are, do you have to match their diet? No, they do eat the whole season also when they come up spawning. I mean, a lot of people say they don't, but they actually do. Because, you know, it's also quite logical if a, if a sea trout comes into the river to spawn like in May and it won't spawn before November. Of course, it has some kind of sort of a, let's have some sort of a vitamin pill at some point. Yeah. <laughs> so it does take take something. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the rest of your timeline then. Because I do want to ask you some questions about fishing for Atlantic salmon because mm-hmm. they're blowing my mind. Yeah. And it's funny to hear you say that sea trout are... are difficult. Yeah, because yeah. I find Atlantic salmon difficult. Quite yeah. they're, they're moody and I cannot yeah. figure them out. So then what happened from high school? Did you go to college? No, I didn't. Um, I actually went into the military and stayed with the military for four years. Okay. And, and after that, I worked uh, for a period in a slaughterhouse. But at that time also, I started up fly fishing uh, as a profession. Right, through was, who? Well, I was like 20, 23 years old. I started you know, educating people on, on uh, night schools in fly fishing and also about uh, fly tying. And I also had like youngsters where I did that. So I had like three three sessions a week. Plus I started doing it for groups of people, for local fishing clubs and stuff like that. So I started out, you know, instructing very early. And that has, you know, that kind of became my, you know, you know, first thing to do, like work-wise and my living also. But who took so, you under their wing at first? Or were you just a savvy self-promoter? I started for myself and then I got into the, the Danish Sports Fishing Federation as an instructor there. It's just like a four-year process to getting in there. You know, you, 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 kind, you kind of have to like go through a school there. But I got in as a, as a grown-up because, you know, I had been fishing for so long and I already had been instructing for many years. Single-hand stuff at that time? It was both single and double-hand. Wow, so what year do you think that was? It would have been about 83, 84. Okay, so that was really early from the double hands dance. Exactly. That really hadn't picked up yet, especially in North America. I mean, it was just starting to be spoke about. Yeah, I remember that when I came to the States the first time, you know, that didn't know too much about two-handed rods. Yeah. But, you know, we grew up with them here, you know, in Scandinavia. It's it's like something we grew up with just equal as a single hand rod also. Is it overhead casting or is it proper spay casting? It was both back then, but it, but things were different there, you know, because the tackle we had when I started out was way different than what we have today. I mean, back then you had like a 
floating way forward and then you had a sinking way forward and that's it. There was not all of this like shooting heads and things you can adopt in different ways. When you say sinking weight forward, like a full sink line? It was a full sink, yeah. Yeah, I remember some English guys came when I was guiding back then and they had this full sink line and it was a bitch to cast. Like it wouldn't cast. That was a total mistake. So what was that about? I mean, was I, what's the, what's the key with that? How do you even cast something like that? Well, nobody really fished with it. You you just had it, you know, but then you try it and then you just got back to the floating. Oh, okay. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) All right. So then what about your guiding? Because I know you did a, I mean, you guided 10 years in Iceland. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've always just kind of followed your path. I'll I'll Mm -hmm. be in Iceland and they're, they're like, Henrik was just here. And then I'll be in Quebec and they're like, Henrik was just here. And I'll be in Norway. Henrik was just here. Like, where did this all start? Well, if you take Iceland, I guided on Iceland for 11 years. 11, okay. Uh, yeah, and that was 11 full seasons from season start to season end. And like every day, because back then you were guided every day. There's no days off, you know, it's just seven days in a row. So of course, that's given me like a ton of experience because I've been seeing and watching people and fishing, you know, and I've been giving them instructions, you know, and then watching from above, you know, seeing what happens when the fly passes the fish and what effect that has. And also like trying to read people. But at the same time, also when I was doing that, uh, I had became popular as, a, as an instructor, not just in, in, in Scandinavia, but also worldwide, because mm. I've been doing seminars like all over the world. And I think it's because I think different than most instructors, because I'm not like fly caster. You know, people call people, you know, people call most people instructors fly casters. But I, I don't see myself as a fly caster. I'm a sufficient caster, for sure. But I'm a fly fisherman, which is way different than a fly caster. Big time. Yeah. So so fly casting doesn't really have any interest for me. It's it's about how you get the fly there. And that's the only thing you need the fly the fly cast for. At that time, it was like my job was both like guiding the whole season there. And then I was instructing the rest of the year. And at that time, also, I got involved with Loop. And that was back in right. 92. From 92 to 2000, I was uh, associated with them as also as a designer. So I started like actually, you know, changing gear you know and thinking differently and back then loop was a a strong card because loop kind of changed the market the way we do it actually today and loop uh, in the 90s was full of people which was creative which was like thinking out of the you know very visionary and was changing everything like you know we went to colored rods we went to like a gray waders instead of like the brown we were used to and large arbor reels and long leaders and we started the shooting heads i was actually the one that made the shooting head the first like ready to go shooting head system which was done in 95. was and, it that early yeah wow i mean i remember a lot of this but i didn't realize mm. it was that early no it, it came then because it was it was an idea i had because we had shooting heads at that time but it was like uh, you just bought a length like either 12 meters or 14 meters if it was single hand or two hand and then you had to adapt them yourself and, and nobody really knew how to adopt those, you know, how long should it be? What should the weight be? So there was a lot of confusion on that field. And uh, when I was guiding on Iceland, when Loop got like this great reputation, we had a lot of people buying up products. And then they came to me at night when we had the last full and said, oh, can you adapt my head for tomorrow? So I was sitting like every night till two o'clock in the morning, putting loops on the ends, you know, and cutting heads, you know, so, so people can go fishing the day after. And I found that right quite annoying because, you know, you make loops all light, you know, it's two o'clock and then you have to go guiding at six. Horrible. It was a long life, yeah. <laughs> why did you leave loop? Uh, why did I leave loop? Uh, you know, at that time, you know, loop changed and uh, loop is not what it was to say it that way because loop back then was creative people, but no management. You know, they, they needed somebody to look after the finances and how to run the business. And that didn't exist in the 90s. There was a lot of people throwing balls up in the air, you know, and trying to catch them again. And uh, 
at that time, you know, Luke changed hands over to, uh, I believe it was a Canadian that kind of had put a lot of money into it and suddenly he owned Loop. Rob? Yeah, I think so. It might be. But at that time, you know, it, 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 it became more like, you know, I think it's a hobby for him, not to be rude, but I don't think it's a business. And back then it was a business, you know, and it, it was like a creative business, but not a real business. Like like when, you know. when Krister had it, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Okay, because so. that's how I first heard of you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you had some serious street cred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then plus the guiding and then the DVD. Yeah. So let's get to the DVD. Talk to me about this. Okay. Well, the Danish national TV wanted to make a, a program about me. And um, I had two people from Danish TV coming up and following me for, for a week, you know, and I was saying different things and doing this like life thing. Um, the life thing? Yeah, the life thing. Yeah, you know, where you're at and why you, why, how you become what you are today. Right. And then those guys thought like, oh, it could be really interesting to actually make a, a DVD with instructions and then uh, try to make it in a different way. So you actually make it with instruction, but also what it's for. And one of my purpose for, for that was also like, when you make a DVD, you're not going to just tell how it is, you're actually going to show how it is. So we put a lot of effort into like actually showing what happens instead of just telling it. Because there was a lot of DVDs on the market that actually, ours was the first DVD. There was a lot of VHS, let me say it like that, you know, yeah. the, the tapes. <laughs> and, and there was a lot of those, you know, where people were telling how you do this. And then the next scene, they saw them with a bended rod. But people need to see that part between when you show and tell. You know, the show and tell thing. Yeah, exactly. footage rolling though. Exactly. No, not really. You just have to plan it well. Okay, or, so, or know how to catch fish. Yeah, yeah. or have a little luck. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, so you put out the TV, the DVD, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. what happened? Especially in North America, did you find that all of a sudden your reputation and your name started to spread through North America? It did because we put out six DVDs from from different locations, and they're all with uh, eight different subtitles, and I spoke English in them. So so it's like international product we have made, and it and it really grew. But I also think because the way we think or the way I think when I fish and, and explain it, I think it's different from the approach many people have to it today. Because if you look at fly fishing, you know, you have, you have people who's very interested in casting and they try to cast a mile and they're standing in a swimming pool and they call it fly casting, but it, not, it does not really have anything to do with fly casting. I mean, it should just be called casting. But what we do is fly fishing, which is way different. And fly fishing is much easier than that fly casting stuff because fly, fly fishing is more, it's shorter and people got this idea like you have to cast really far to catch fish. And you don't, because, you know, we just had like 300 cubic here in the, in the river here in, in Gaula, and it was like flooded. But, you know, you're fishing the first five meters of the, of the river. You don't need to fish the deep spots, because that's where the fish are. So, you know, fly casting is way easier. And it's, it's, it gives people like an idea about that, that you have to be able to cast long to actually catch fish. And that's totally wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah. Let's so, talk a little bit about your fishing, if that's mm -hmm. okay. How many okay. salmon have you caught? Uh, till today, I've caught 4,256. <laughs> and I mean, it's not even an egotistical thing to know how many salmon you've caught because no. you have to actually record them in books, right? I mean, a lot of these places keep logs. Yeah. Or do you just have your own separate little log? I have my own, yeah. You do? Okay. I have my own. You know, I count them for every year. So I know, you know, when I start this season, I have, of course, my number listed in my phone these days. And then, you know, I, okay, this is where I start. So like I know when I started here in, in June, you know, we started with uh, 249. So... 246, uh, 256 now. So we just count like for the season and it's easy. You catch all, yeah, it's easy. I haven't caught yeah. one yet. <laughs> it, it's bad luck, you know, but also like it's, it's difficult right now. It really is. Why is it difficult? Well, if we knew, you know, it would be easy. 
Right. Yeah, but, <laughs> okay. uh, but it's just like, you know, right now there's not coming that many fish into the river. It's been like out for a while. And I think also because we had such a big flood so late in the season, mm-hmm. if we had that earlier, it would have been much better because it kind of cleans up the river in a different way. And now the fish have to settle down again. Do you find that the fish bite more when the water's dropping? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Because you can fish them in a different way. Like when you have, uh, if you have high water, it's more like here, you know, you cast over and you swing the fly. But when you have water coming down, you have fish, you can fish them in like more tactical. You can fish them with dry flies, you can fish them with hits, you can fish lighter. And, and, and it's much more rewarding in my point of view. I get more fish on the low water than I get on the high water. Do you think that there's something biologically that sets them off or makes them more prone to biting? I, you know, with less water in the river, you get closer to the fish. So, and, and the fish stays more like in the same spot where in the high water, you know, they travel a lot, they move a lot more and they're harder to find. So I think like with the lower water, you know, you, you can use more of your experience, you know, and your, your technical advantages, you know, to get the fish. Speaking of experience, where have you gone salmon fishing? Everywhere. So what is that? Like Russia, Norway, Russia, Denmark. Norway, Scotland, Sweden, Denmark, uh, uh, Iceland, of course, and, and uh, the eastern part of Canada. Is there one in particular, one fishery in particular, that's easier than others? No, I think they're all good. Okay. Uh, well, easier. That was a question. Is anyone easier? E- Iceland is easier. I mean, they have yeah. lots of fish in Iceland, so it's it's easy to fish there. And it's a nice country to visit and, uh, and all that. But I think, you know... The, you know, and when you've done it in a few years, it's not so exciting anymore because you want to have like, you want, in my personally, I wanted to fish in a river where you have like a great average, you know, a great uh, difference between like the sizes of fish. And in Gaula, like you can catch anything from two kilo to 20 kilo. And in Iceland, you only have like, it's three and a half, four, five kilo. And if you get a seven kilo, it's a really large fish in Iceland. Yeah, that's right. So. Okay. Talk to me about the next mm-hmm. step in your timeline. So you start guiding. Are you still guiding? No, not anymore. Why did you stop guiding? Well, I don't have time for it anymore. Mm-hmm. Now with our own company, it's it's not it's not an option. I still do a lot of instructions, but it's more like one on one now. I don't mm-hmm. do group instructions anymore. Talk I, to me about your company, Samo yeah. Logic. Tell yeah. me all about it. Now I worked with companies since '92, three different companies, major companies, and uh, and I think you know when I quit the last company in 2004, and I got tired of uh, of like mass producing stuff because that's kind of what we were doing like you have to make a new series every nine months you know there has to be a new series why do they do that uh, to make money i guess you know it's all about like mass production you know and make money that's what that's what i that's how i see it because i think all it does is instill insecurity into the customer's head because they're like well why mm. is that new and, pro- and improved what's wrong with that one why does it have to be better than it was before i thought it was great well it's, it's you look at it like it comes out in january in february and then it's pronounced like oh this is the world's best lot you know uh, rod you know we made it out of the most amazing carbon fiber and you know they put all kind of stuff into it and twisted it you know and jet fuel and all this like they can't find the most impressive word to put into it and then they you know, introduce this rod in, in like January, February. And by October, you know, it's half price. And it happens with all the rods. And then they're making a new one, a new world's best. And I don't believe that. I never believed in that. And it was kind of annoying for me, like also I had to do that because it's, I have a lot of passion for what I do. And if I have to make a new rod every nine months, it's not possible. You can't do that. You can't make a rod that's better. You can make a rod that's different, but you can't make one that's better. So if, if you want to do that, you know, you have to be have a three or four year at least uh, life span on a rod before you can actually make something that's better. 
that was one of the reasons why I stepped out. And another reason is also I stepped out is I was getting so tired of the whole AFTM system that people keep running in the AFTM system. Like the what system? The AFTM system, you know, that number system you have on the rod that says number oh, yeah. eight and number nine. Because it's all bollocks, to say plain. I mean, nobody knows what an eight weight is. Nobody knows what a nine weight is. And every company has their own weight for an eight weight and own weight for a nine weight. And if you go into a shop and you take four weight forward lines out, number eight, from four different companies, then you end up with four different weights for sure. And then you've got to match them to a rod that says number eight. And the manufacturer won't tell you what it costs with. Maybe because it, it doesn't know. Is there some sort of standard, though, to be able to tell? Well, it, it should be a standard, but like when the FTM system was created, it was like back in the 50s, and it was created when there was only one type of line, and that was like a double-tapered line. And then it was easy because you said like the first 9.15 meters of that line had to have a certain weight, and if it had that weight, it would be that number. So then you could number it to 5, to 8, or whatever. And then you could match it to a rod that had number 5 because you're supposed to carry that weight. But today, you know, we're still using that system, but weight for a uh, double table line doesn't exist anymore. Now it's all shooting heads for the most of the time, like 90% of the lines coming out. And the rest is weight forwards, which has different kind of length of the belly. And you have to have the belly outside to load the rod properly. So if you have a long belly or short belly, they can't have the same weight. So the whole system is screwed. And that's what makes it difficult, actually, to be a fly fisher today, a fly caster. Because if you don't know how to match your gear, you have no chance to be honest, and you'll not improve. And I wanted to improve. I wanted to change that because I know exactly. Like I've been studying the physics in fly casting, like the dynamics in the fly cast. I know how to fly fish, and I've been instructing for many years. I know the end consumer. So we needed to fix this problem for them so they actually could get gear which actually matches. So therefore, I went into a, a gram and grain system. And uh, it's built in a completely different way because it's also built from the way of a fly fisherman. So, like when we go to a river like Gaula, for example, you know, you want to find out what flies you need here. You need, you know, you put a bunch of flies in your hands, like small ones and big ones. And then you look at the biggest one of those and says, okay, for this fly here, I would need a certain mass, actually, and a certain leader length to actually carry that fly and turn it over. And you want that mass, I call it a leader mass now, to have a certain length because as longer it is, the more invisible it is, the more life it will give to the fly. So when you have the mass of the fly and the leader, then you can find out what kind of line weight you need to carry that line and that fly, that leader and that fly. And when you have the line weight, then you build the rod. And then you have to think about how should the rod be. And then it comes in with the dynamics in the fly cast because when you do cast, you want to have your rod top to stay up high in the air because that's actually directing the line and keeping the line up. But you want to load with the lower part of your rod because that's where all the power is. And that's the way I create things. So that way we can actually sell a rod, let's say it cast with 278 grains, and then you can buy a line, which is 278 grains, and then you can buy leaders for 278 grains lines. And then I can assure you that it's very easy to cast. Nowadays, when you buy rods, you can mm -hmm. get rods that say right on them, the grains. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you started? I started that in 2000. Actually, in 1998, I started doing it. I started pushing it. And I started pushing it, particularly with the salespeople. says, I want to do this. I want to go that way. But at that time, I didn't have that power because the salespeople was against it. Because, no, 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 it's going to be too difficult. You know, the shops it's don't confusing. understand it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, We can't change it. Yeah. But then, it's, then at least I got that permission to put both the AFTM number and then the weight at the same time. Okay. So I got the weight in there. And uh, when I got into my, it's made my own company. We don't have AFTM numbers. It doesn't exist. We only have weights. Yeah. 
Okay, so what else does Samuel Logic sell then? You guys sell rods? I have always been a strong believer in do what you do best. And what we do is salmon and sea trout fishing. This is my passion. This is what I know a lot about. And therefore, we make salmon and sea trout fishing gear, which is like rods, lines, reels, and leaders. And I get that thing to match 100%. And uh, we don't make clothing, you know, compared to many other companies because we can't make clothing uh, proper. And to particularly today, you know, you know, the way you get clothing in most companies actually go to China and then you get a company to produce it. But I've seen how they do it over there many years by traveling for the other companies. And it's a big mess. It's such a, it's such a climate, climate uh, you know, discussion. You know, it's so hard on the climate, the way they produce it. Uh, so you're talking environmentally? I'm talking environmentally, yeah. So I, I, don't, want to su- I don't want to support that. So that's where, why... Where yeah. are your rods made? Well, our rods is made in Korea. Okay. Yeah. And uh, our lines are made in the U.S. and our reels are made in Germany. I have rods made in Korea today because I believe that they're probably some of the best rod makers in the world. Korea is different in, in compared to the Western world. The way the Asians work, it's, they're much more dedicated to what they do. And when I started out there, it was different because, you know, when, when I came to the factory first, the people knew how to make a rod nine foot or 14 foot for that matter. But they didn't. Ha- they did not have a clue about what it was about. What is it for? What are you going to use this for? And when I found out that they had no clue about what we were using this watch for, I took the time and said, "Okay, I am going to teach you what we actually use this watch for and what I want the watch to do." So I started actually educating these engineers, which has a degree in how to actually work with carbon fiber, building them into rods. So I, cho- I taught them fly casting and explained to them like how I want the rod to work and how I want it the power to come from the bottom and how I want the top to stay still in the air. And then I have developed a program together with them. So when I do prototypes now, you know, we actually do in a program, explain this is the curve I want the rod to, to work with and I want this pressure on the different parts. And then they make prototypes to me and send to me and then I work with them, take them out fishing, not just for a week. I don't just cast them on a grass for a day. No, I take them for like a couple of months and try them on different uh, things and with different uh, lines and and different uh, weather types also. And then I go back and then I'm going to make changes one more time. For me, it takes like three years to actually make a perfect rod. And for me, it has to be perfect. So it takes like three years to make a complete series. And that's also a reason why you can't put rods out every nine months. Yeah, well, how many yeah. how many models of rods do you guys sell? Well, we have uh, three series today. So, and, and uh, we're still selling the first series, you know, which we made five years ago. So, and... So that's what I meant like by four years. And it's very popular, actually. Yeah, I'm excited. So, I want to try one. Yeah. Why didn't you branch into Pacific Salmon and Steelhead? Because it's, you seem like the perfect person, the perfect, you have the, all the all the knowledge, your ethics seem to be in the right place. Why not branch out into my world? Well, I still, I do steelheading also, but it's just like it's, it's over on the other side of the pond, right? But I could steelhead with one of your rods. Yeah, of course you could. And and I also have my ideas about steelhead could be done different than it's done today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, I think like you know, being being who I am, you know, knowing in the salmon fishing world and the sea trout world, you know, I don't want to like start. You know, people might get the wrong idea about it if they start pushing like this is what you should do for fly for for, for steelhead. But I have cast uh, fished for steelhead for many years. Like I lived in the states for ten years, and at that day, you know, I did it on the west coast and I did it up at, at the, the rivers also in BC. Mm. And the way I did it was not the typical steelhead way. I actually did it this way as I was fishing for salmon. 
And it worked very well for me. How so? So what do you do differently when you fish for salmon? Well, the way most steelhead is, now you have to correct me if, it's, if I'm wrong, it's like a short head, heavy head, and it's a heavy fly most of the time. Depends. Okay. Okay. So that is, I don't know much too much about it. But I know the way we fish for, steel, for salmon over here is we fish with lighter flies. Or I, do, I fish with lighter flies. And particularly if I fish on the bottom, I would never use a heavy fly, ever. But most steelheads use heavy flies. For the winter steelhead. Unfortunately, a lot of winter steelheaders fish for summer steelhead with heavy flies, which is a shame because summer steelhead don't need heavy flies because they're a little more of an aggressive fish, especially mm -hmm. with the with the warmer water speeds up their metabolism. Mm -hmm. um, so you, like, I like to fish a lot of small sparse flies. Yeah. But unfortunately, uh, a lot of people do fish. And I used to do that too, fish real yeah. heavy flies. Yeah. That's what I see. But I see, you know, also when you go to the shops, it's big, it's big heavy big flies you buy there. So it's the one that's being pushed. So that's what people think they should do, right? And then they're using like heavy lines because they got to cast these big flies. And there's a lot of things that goes completely against what I believe in, particularly when it comes to the dynamics of a fly cast. And the things about heavy lines is, is wrong to start with because the heavier your line is, the thicker your leader is, the more static your fly is. Because you're not just talking from a, a sink weight. You're talking about actual the grain weight. weight. The actual yeah. weight of it, yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. If you say mass versus velocity, the higher the mass is, the lower the velocity is. So when you increase the mass, you have to use more muscle power to get it out. And you should never use more power or more weight on your line than needed. So if you're fishing with smaller flies, why do you want to fish with a, like a 600, 700 grain line weight? Because it's just going to add to the splashing and it's going to be harder for you to cast and it's going to be harder to work with. So fish as light as possible. I never use more than 540 grains. That's the absolutely top I use. And most of the time I only fish with like uh, 370 grains, 400 grains. Mm -hmm, and that's lands, in general. Lands yeah. so much more gentle. Exactly. So you believe... But it also gives more life to the fly. Yeah. So How long of a leader do you use? Uh, my leaders in average here for salmon fishing is between 17 to 22 foot. Mm -hmm. I think I remember yeah. you talking about this a couple of years ago. Yeah. So what about if you're fishing a sink tip? Same thing. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So how do you make sure then that your sink tip's not down and your leader's coming up? Well, you know, in the books, that's how they explain it in the books. But all those books are wrong because it's like, you know, they're trying to break the gravity law, you know, because if, if you put a line out in the water and you have a sinking line on and it gets down into the water, the leader would be straight after the line because it's not going to float up. It's going to actually be pushed down by the current. So it'd be pretty much at the same level as your sink tip is. So there's no need to like uh, to, to have a short leader there. And also the thing is, if you have a short leader, you mess up your casting at the same time because you need to have a certain amount of leader mass to actually control the loop, you know, the upper line, the speed of the upper line. Mm -hmm. So, so you, have, you are depending on a certain amount of leader, you know, to actually obtain that mass, you need to control the upper line. So if you have a 17-foot leader, do you fish mm -hmm. sink tips? Yeah, I do. How long of a sink tip are you fishing? I guess that's depend. That depends. Well, I only fish sink tips, you know, when when you have uh, strong currents, top currents. But I never fish sink, sink tips when I'm fishing down. Oh, so you're just trying to get through the top part of the, of exactly. the water column? Exactly. If you have a strong current, strong top current, and you're fishing up in the top of the water, then you want to use a sink tip, and you want to, you might use a, a heavier fly there because it needs to come down under the water. But if you're fishing down at the bottom, that's where you have the slowest water flow. So there you need to have something lighter. So you need, you need the line to bring down the leader and the fly. But the fly has to be light because if it's not light, it's not going to be alive. Okay, yeah. so if you have a light fly, 17-foot mm -hmm. leader, mm -hmm. whatever sink, say a 10-foot sink tip, mm -hmm. 
And then how long is your average line length, head length? Well, here with the water level we have right now, I fish with a sink three, four head. So that means like three inch, sinking three inch per second, four inch per second. And then I have like a 20 foot nylon leader. How long is the head of the line? The belly. The, 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 the belly of the your line. Head. Yeah. Well, it depends. You know, in our company, they all have different lengths because they're all made according to the physics, like, you know, to an average person standing on the water flow on uh, the surface. But when you have a sinking, it's normally generally late, uh, shorter than a, than a floating is. And the one I'm fishing with now is about eight meters. Okay. Yeah. All right. I got and you. then you have 20 foot of, of leader. How long is your rod? Uh, the one I'm using now is uh, 12 and a half foot. Okay, so you're still able to get it off the water. Yeah, I would never use, you know, we don't produce long rods. I think the longest rod we produce is, is a 14 foot rod. Thank God, okay. Yeah. <laughs> the shorter rods is way better. They're way better for actually for casting and also like just moving along the bank with all the trees and stuff. But also like fighting the fish, the shorter rod can put a lot more power on a fish than a longer rod can do. So it's kind of like a misinterpretation when people say like, oh, the big, long, big rods, you know. But you hardly have any pressure on the fish with that. We get into this all the time because yeah. I fish a 13-footer yeah. out here. And mm -hmm. Charles is like, no, I've got the 15-footer. And I, I finally <laughs> caved the other day and I grabbed the 15-footer and it was mm -hmm. ridiculous. I feel much more in control from a casting and from a, a fighting stance with a shorter rod. Yeah. It's it's so much easier to fish with and, and you have more much more control. It's, it's less to carry also. It's, and it's better balanced according to the, to a person. But that's kind of the influence, like, you know, what we talked about before, like casting, like these world casting championships, you know, they should do in swimming pools. It has an effect on fly fishing because people think, oh, I'm going to a big river, so I need this, but you don't. And the thing is, like on the bigger rivers, the fish would still be in the side of the river. They'll not be in the middle. It's hardly the fish in the middle. And most of the time, people try to catch the fish on the other side, and you won't catch the fish on the other side because you're going to have a strong middle current, which will screw it up. So, you know, fly, fly casting and fly fishing is two different things. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the river right now. Mm -hmm. Right now, the water is what I would say is a pretty average height for most steelhead rivers. Mm -hmm. um, I don't speak in CFS, but you might. Do you know what the flow is right now? The flow is uh, about 60, 58 cubic right now. It came down from 350 on Saturday to 58 now. Okay, so let's so say... five days. Yeah. yeah. So is that about average, though? A uh, little bit low at this point? Uh, no. it's uh, Last year, at the same time, we had like 20 cubic at this oh. time here, and the fishing was amazing. Let's say that you get to a, you get to a spot, mm -hmm. and I'm just trying to think of a spot that we've both fished. Well, it's, let's try to analyze it in a different way. I mean, I had a slogan. Uh, I've used a slogan since I, you know, for many, many years, like be the fly. Like always when people start casting, they tell them like, be the fly. Start to think differently. Because the thing is like people think too much about casting and getting the line over there. And then they don't think anymore. Then they just wait for the next cast. But the thing is like, you know, it's when you put the fly down, that's when you start fishing. And that's when you have to like be the fly. And the fly has to have a certain speed. And the speed depends on what pool you're in, the temperature, time of the day, and and also like uh, the light conditions very much, and also what kind of fish you're fishing for. So it's different kind of speeds, you know, and, and it's something that comes very natural to me, the way I fish. Because, you know, it, it's like, it sounds weird to many people, but, you know, if I say like when I go to a river, to a pool, to a stretch of water, I don't really see the water, I see the fish. So I see the fish, you know, hanging in the air somewhere. I know a fish will be there and a fish will be there and a fish will be there. And then I see the different places where the fish will take. Then I need to like put the fly in with a certain speed and a certain swing for that fish, which is there. 
But for salmon, is it? See, I do the same thing with steelhead, yeah. but I'm always trying to slow it down. Yeah. So I'll make my cast and then I'll find that I end mm-hmm. up positioning my rod tip slightly upstream, maybe feeding a bit of line into it and I'm side drifting it down, trying to keep yeah. it in the gut. Yeah. But with salmon fishing, people always say you want to speed your fly up. So are you casting at a 90 and putting a belly in your line or are you casting slightly downstream? Well, it's, it's not true that you have to speed up your fly because you know sometimes you can park a fly over fish and it'll take it. So you need park to, a fly? Yeah, you park it. Like if you like, like last year I got uh, the biggest fish of the season down at the beach. We fished that, and that was, take, that was I took that on a park fly. So I found a place where the fish were coming up, and then I got myself in a position, and then with a very light line and a long leader and a small fly, I got the fly parked just where they're going to come up. Okay, so you stalled it, yeah, or stalled you it fully stopped it. I completely stopped it and kept it there. So I had it swinging in there, and then I kept it there, and then I had it. You know, I could mend it in the current so it could go a little back and forth, like swing a little to the sides. And I had the strongest, you know, take ever. How did you stop it? Well, it, you know, it worked with the currents. So you'd have to kind of wait out yeah, of it and yeah, keep you your fly. Yeah. Your so tip. You had less water last year, so you can like, you know, walk pretty much all over the river. So I found a position, you know, where I wouldn't spook the space, you know, and then I could still keep the fly there. But I would never swing a fly there because if I swing a fly there, I wouldn't get the fish. Right. But I knew if I parked it there, it would be annoying for the fish and it will take it. So you can say like, sometimes you park the fly, sometimes you swing the fly, sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's slow. Slow is really good also. And sometimes, like, a lot of people have had a fly, you know, we're coming down, you know, when it's hanging straight down from them, then they take. But I would say, like, 75% of my fish or 80% of my fish has been taken by a strip. Well, that's what I was going to yeah. ask you. How yeah. often do you strip back? All the time. Really fast? Like a depends. strip? Depends again on the pool, you know, and how fast I want the fly to go. It depends also on the fly size. So how do you know? I mean, what, what do you... I, I understand you look at yeah. pressure and temperature yeah. and stuff, but... I mean, is there a situation that you can give me an example of when you would strip versus when you would swing or when you would stall or when you would? No, it's very, it's very hard to say like that, you know, because it's, it, and then we get into like what they write in the books, you do it like this, but you don't because it's all different from spot to spot. So like if we went to a riverside, went to a pool, I could tell like this, this place you would do with this speed and there you'll do it with that speed and that has to come this way. And so you can't generalize and say like it has to be speed. It's all different from pool to pool. What about when you make your cast? So say mm. you make your cast, say that in this particular pool, you're casting on a 90. Mm. You know how so many times we make our cast, we stop our tip high, mm. and then there's that little bit of slack in the beginning, yeah. and that's okay because the fly starts to kind of sink down. Mm-hmm. When you make your cast, do you change your trajectory and get your raw tip down right away so that you've got no slack from the beginning? Or do you like a bit of slack? Again, I do both. It depends on the pool. It all depends on the pool. It's, it, and, and, you know, it's the same in steelhead fishing, in my point of view, also in sea trout and also in salmon. So I think, you know, you, can, you can't generalize and say, like, this is how you do it. Like, when you salmon fish, and this is how you do it when you sea trout fish, or this is how you do it when you, uh, you know, steelhead fish. I think, you know, I think more, the more important thing is, like, you know, if you want to be successful as an angler, is, like, never use more line weight than needed. And I think that's the biggest problem for most people because people are using a lot of line weight and they're using, like, I mean, some people say, okay, I'm going to go to Norway and catch salmon. So they, they get a long rod, you know, and they get a heavy line and they get like big flies. And then they go start fishing with it, you know, and it's not working because you have low water, you know, and they have a lot of light, you know, and, and less current. So, and, and if you look at the Norwegians, they fish like that all year. They have one rod for their fishing, 15 foot, a long, heavy line, and then they go crossover and then they wait for the fish to take. And they use that if it's no water or a lot of water, right? So they don't they don't adapt to it, 
And I think that's a mistake with men. Like you, you need to have, and that's also maybe we have to have different setups, you know, because I'm using three different setups now when I'm fishing now, because I use different setups from different situations. And and I think that's what makes me successful, you know, with, with the fishing. What about small flies versus large flies? I battle with this all the time. I mm. don't know what to fish here. Yeah. Or for salmon in general. I mean, in Iceland, it was... They blew my mind with that horrible little Francis. Yeah. And it was out fishing everything. I just, and then some rivers, I mean, the fish that I, I actually have just mm. thinking now, I have hooked fish here, but they were on larger flies. Yeah. I don't know when to fish small and when to fish big. Uh, Francis, Francis is a nasty fly in my point of view. I think it's not a fly that should be used because a lot of people use it like a spoon. So, you know, they're not really fly fishing. And now I'm talking about the bigger Francis. And it's just like a dummy fly in my point of view. Why does it work so well? I, I don't really know why it works so well, but if you know how to fish that one, you can clean out pools easily. But it's not fly fishing. It's because you're squeezing the fish in a way, like you go a little upstream and let the fly fall down, actually going straight at the fish. Oh, and so you don't swing it like a regular? No. Oh, okay, no, no, so it's, it's fished differently. Yeah, if you fish it like a regular, you would be less successful with it. If you know how to fish it, yeah. you're very efficient. When we used it on Iceland, I saw it like affected, you know, many times and I did it myself, which I'm ashamed of today. If I knew better, I wouldn't have done it. But like, you know, you could literally go to a pool and clean it out. But the people coming after you to that pool will not be able to catch fish because you, you kill the pool for like two days, two oh, or three days. Wow. Yeah. This is, it does something like psychological to the fish. That's and I crazy. don't know what it's, yeah. So it's a bad fly. If you're fishing with a group of people and you have people fishing after you or you're fishing in a group, don't use it because you're really destroying the river and you're destroying your own pools. Right. Oh, that's good yeah. to know. Yeah. Okay, so talk to me about the treble hook versus the single hook. I still fish a single barbless hook, especially yeah. with a baby on my back, but what's the deal with treble hooks? I, I feel like you can't get the same hook up, but I, I don't know if that's just me. Oh, it's a Norwegian thing, I think. You know, oh, yeah, it's, it's not... Yeah. No, I think you know, more people are using doubles today and, and singles are extremely efficient, as you know yourself. I mean, when you get a single in, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's going to stay. What do you fish? I fish doubles and singles. Is there, is there a reason why you fish a double from a presentation stance? Yeah, the fly goes much better. And, and when, I fire, when I fish with a double, it's always a loose hanging double. So that means the points are hanging up. That means that you can fish closer to the bottom and you can hit the stones once in a while and it won't get stocked. How do you make them so that they flip up? I know that when we steelhead fish, we put weights on our flies so that they flip up. But how do yeah. you do that with these? Well, it comes when you fish with long white wing flies, and I only fish like shadow types, you know, sun ray shadow flies. It actually, when you when you do the cast, you know, it might be in a different direction, but as soon as it starts swimming, the the wing is going to catch the, the fly and then turn uh, the hook and then turn the hook upwards. So it comes completely natural. Okay, so you yeah. fish what kind of flies? Sun ray sh shadows? Yeah. That's it? I only fish those, yeah. Hold on. This might be my key here. <laughs> you only fish sunray shadows. Absolutely. Interesting. You know, yeah. last year that was the go-to, and they were, or two years ago, and they were like stripping them back as fast as they could yeah. through the surface. Well, get them in different sizes. I fish one we call the Gaspé Shadow, and uh, I gave it that name because, I, you know, it was extremely successful when I first started fishing in Gaspé because nobody fished with double hand rods over there, and nobody fished with, like, shadow flies. They all fished with the traditional flies. And when I started fishing with that, that was just like a magnet. But I've fished with that for like many years, like all back to the, the early 90s. And uh, I'll say over a thousand of my salmon has been caught on, on, on a Gaspé Shadow fly. Okay, interesting. So and colors of, in particular? Right now it's green, you know. But I think we, we have them in green, yellow and white and and, uh, and orange, you know. So it's something to like, you want to have it 
to fit into the environment. So if you have a lot of green banks, you know, you use green because green is like it's more hidden for the fish and then suddenly it's above them. Uh, if you have some green in it, I think if you have orange in it, they'll see it earlier. But don't these fish all see the same color? Don't you want to switch it up? Why not fish like a pink or a blue or something different? Yeah, it might be good too. You never know. But I think, you know, when you have used that April, since you know you pretty much started your fly fishing, you know that works, right? And I think that's one of the key words also in salmon fishing and all kinds of fishing that you actually have to believe in the fly you put on. I mean, a lot of people you know, go around from different flies and, and put so much trust and value into the fly, and it really hasn't. But uh, And it shouldn't have that credit because a fly is a fly. And if you have a fly in your box that you believe in, then you're way more focused when you fish, and that will give you more fish also. So I think that's the key, actually, you know, that you have to believe in the fly. Have confidence. Yeah. But the thing about the shadow fly is, is, is it's a fly that fish extremely well in the water, in a current. So because it's, you can fish deep and you can fish it high. When you're swinging, do you ever do that thing where they kind of pull back and forth trying to make it work? Uh, no. <laughs> Why? <laughs> no, because I don't think it has an effect. I do the stripping instead. So I'd rather strip you know, then, then, then rocking my rock uh, hand back and forth. And also I've watched, you know, what happens, you know, if you stand up above and you see somebody do that, he might move his arm, but the fly doesn't move at all. Oh, I always wondered about that. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't move at all. So are you doing short little strips or do they, does that not if, move if, at all? If you either? move the fly, if you shorten up the line by doing strips, then of course the fly will move forward. That's movement to the fly if you're stripping, but not rocking the arm back and forth. Don't think I have, it doesn't have any purpose. Okay, so when you see fish rolling in the in a salmon river, mm. does that mean that they're just hanging out or that they're pushing in? There's different kind of rolls, you know. It's, there's a roll where they're traveling, then there's a roll where they're staying. There's a roll when they show this is my territory. So uh, then there's a happy roll, you know. That's it's just like there's different rolls, and you have to like analyze them differently, and also where the roll is more important. So what happens, I mean, all the time I see them in heavy water come up mm. and do this enormous splash in heavy yeah. water. What's that one? Uh, it's hard to say. You know, I have to see it myself, then I could tell you what it was. Because most of the roles we see now, you know, is fish running in. And when you see them in strong water, it's normally fish going. But when you see them coming into the pool, you normally see them many times showing. As soon as they get into a new pool, they'll show in the bottom of the pool. Oh, okay, so they'll do yeah. like a gentle roll? Exactly, yeah. When it's a heavy splash, though, you figure that's them leaving usually? Uh, sometimes I actually think that they go for something, you know, because when it's a strong current, you know, and you have a fish coming up, splashing really hard in the current, I think they're actually going for something. And I also know I've, I've caught a lot of fish that way with the sunray shadow, where a fish with a floating line, and it's fish just below the surface fast, and it's exactly the same role I see. But they're not eating, or do you think that's a myth? Do you think that they are feeding? No, they're not eating. Uh, they might eat, they might have that vitamin pill now and then. But, but the thing is, like when the fish enters the river, uh, it used to, they used to be in big schools out in the ocean. And when they're in schools out there, they have to depend on fast reactions. So when they see something, they all go for it because you've got to get fed before your neighbor takes your food. So they have a reaction to what they see. And I think that reaction, when they come into the river, still have a part of that, you know, still have something left of that. Because when they enter the sea, into the river, you know, they're focused on going spawning. But there's still just a little bit left of that reaction from the ocean, you know, where you gotta you gotta feed when you know when the food is there. Yeah. Hey, I've got so. a question for you. Mm -hmm. In Iceland, you know when you when you guys used to do the trip down the cliff? Mm-hmm. I don't know the name. But anyway, when we would see the salmon, they would come right in the pool and you could tell they were uneasy and they'd keep kind of circling back to the tail and then back up to the head and then back to oh, the tail. Is this, is this Blanda you're talking about? 
I can't remember the name, but one of those pools anyway, yeah. down in the canyon. Okay, you could see them circling, mm-hmm. and I remember was it yeah. Rabbi? Somebody was saying that they were uneasy. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, Why would a fish be it was, uneasy? It was in Mifia, are you were then? In the, yeah, the Mifia. Okay. Mifiaro. Yeah. Is that how Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that thing, that place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I guided there for, for many years and uh, many weeks, actually, every year. And um, Mifiaro is stiff in that way. And then that pool you're talking about, if when they come in and circle, it's because they want to move. And when they want to move, you can't, you can't get to them. Right. That's what yeah. happened. So yeah. what's that all about? Is the water just too low? They can't make the next, the it, next run? Yeah. If the water gets too low and they, people get close to the pool, they'll start moving around. Yeah. And especially if somebody has been fishing a Francis there, they'll move around a lot then. So they're just uneasy. Yeah. T- they're totally done. You know, you can't get them. Um, well, listen, I understand that you guys need to go fishing. Is there anything I've missed in your, I mean, I've missed a lot, obviously. You've got an, a story that goes on for, I mean, how old did you say you are now? I'm 57 now. You got a 57 year yeah. story that we can't possibly cover here. <laughs> but is there anything that I've missed that you would like to add? I think there's important points like in in uh, in that people should try to fish lighter than they do today because a lot of people is fishing heavy and it's not good. It's not good for them, it's not good for the fishing. Do you think people stomp into a pool without thinking and that they need to be a little more gentle wading out there? Yeah, I think actually they have to sit down at the pool, you know, stay there just the first 15 minutes before they even start fishing. Just look at the water, you know, getting that rhythm there uh, before they actually start casting and start with the short cast instead of the long ones first. I mean, there's a lot to fishing. Fishing can be, you know, fishing is the way you attach the pool, where you, you know, it's always exciting for me because there's so many ways you can do it. And, but you got to do it the right way. Yeah. That's the key. Well, I'm going to do that today. Okay. I think I'm going to put on a really long leader. When you guys are fishing your leaders, are you fishing mono? Are they just standard monofilament? Are they fluorocarbon? No, I only use standard monofilament. I'm against fluorocarbon. I don't see any point in it. Does Samuel Logic sell these long leaders? Yeah, we do. It's probably one of our hits. You know, we sell a lot of them. Uh, we sell like I would say like we sell over five thousand. You know, in 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 a season like this, of long leaders, diamond yeah. leaders, yeah. Cool. Well, I'm excited yeah. to fish some of these things, and I hope that we can bring you out to North America. I know that you don't want to dilute or confuse your mm-hmm. brand, but I think that I think that salmon logic would actually fit really well over there. Yeah, we're trying to bring the logic to people, you know, about <laughs> salmon logic, and salmon yeah. fishing, you know, because it's it's quite easy, and there's been a lot of confusion in in in. in I mean, the way that all the confusion is brought in is brought in by salespeople, you know, which is just trying to make money, and our company is made in a different way because it's by passion, and I try to make the products as high quality as possible. So they can stay longer on the market, and I think like that's what's been missing for many years. And 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 tackle which actually match, which is a key thing because if you really want to go fishing, you really are depending on your gear that is batching one hundred percent, because that's how you learn. It'll okay. teach you. Well, I, listen, I can't thank you enough. A middle of what time is it? It's eleven o'clock on a June day on the gala. So this mm. must be. I'm going to let you get back to life. Yeah, we got to go back to life. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the show. It was my pleasure, April. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 